All right. Well, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, this passage. God, every word is inspired, is profitable from you. Um, and Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, the privilege of being able to open it, and even trying to figure out and discuss and look at passages that may be difficult at times. I uh, pray, God, you give us clarity, help us understand kind of the principles behind what you have written here, uh, that, God, we may, um, we may know you better. And, God, most of all, above all these things, uh, the reason we gather this morning is to worship Jesus. He is why we're here this morning. He is the point of every passage of Scripture. And I pray, God, that uh, you'll be lifted up and glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was uh, July 1961. 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together for the first day of training camp. Uh, the uh, previous season had, had uh, ended with a heartbreaking loss uh, when the Packers squandered a late lead in the fourth quarter and lost the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. At the beginning of training camp, the players gathered in the locker room. They were there all talking about uh, the heartbreaking loss and what they could have done better. And they were ready to get to work, right? They're ready to get to work on all their new ideas, scheme out some new plans, all those different things. They were waiting their coach, Vince Lombardi, uh, to come in and kind of give them the opening speech and to get started. David uh, Moneris uh, explain what happened when Lombardi walked in the room. He said, quote, Lombardi took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, um, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. Remember this quote, right? This is a football. And the Packers became the best in the league of, of what, what no one else really mastered, and that was just the fundamentals, going back to the basics. And that year, that next year, uh, they won 37 to 0. 37 to 0. There we go. 37 to 0. To, uh, no, God didn't want us to know. Okay. Um, New York Giants, uh, they beat them 37 to 0 uh, to win the NFL championship just a few years prior to what is now called the Super Bowl. Church, this is, this is a Bible, right? This is, we, we believe this. This is a Bible. This is important. Uh, we believe as a church that it is our foundation. Uh, it's what we build our life on. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of salvation. And so we carve out time every Sunday to open it, to read it, right, to explain it, to apply it. Uh, and kind of like the old kid's book, Where's Waldo? Our goal is trying to find where's Jesus here, right? That's what we're trying to get to because he is the point of every passage of Scripture. We're, look, we're looking for Jesus for hope, for motivation, power, and transformation. We are not here this morning or any morning, to go through some religious motions by attending a weekly meeting, maybe to feel better about ourselves, show maybe we're, we're more moral people than other people, better off in some way. We are here to worship Jesus Christ. He is the point of why we gather and why we carve out this time. Now, I know, uh, I admit, the Bible is old. If you didn't know that, it wasn't written yesterday, okay? It's at least 2,000 years old plus, with much, other, much older writings than that. And it may seem strange in our tech-savvy, kind of what's-next type of culture, today's old news type culture, we're still reading a book this old, right? We're still reading passages like we read this morning. But we believe that life is found in the Bible. We believe that God speaks through this book. Uh, when we read passages like we read this morning, 1 Corinthians 11, we may wonder why it is in the Bible. <laughs> it seems strange. It may seem a little archaic. I mean, head coverings, like, why? <laughs> like, what is going on? It seems also uh, kind of culturally uh, offensive, maybe out of touch with the culture in which it, we live today in Western America. 
But we practice what is called expository preaching. That's what we do this. This is, this is a verse-by-verse study. We just open up a book, and we start in verse 1, and we just work our way through what's next. And this is what's next, okay? This is what is there. Um, we do this because we believe every word matters. Every word in the Bible matters. We believe the Bible is inerrant and inspired by God. You say, what in the world does that mean? We believe that God, we call it superintended or guided, the human authors of the Bible so they composed and recorded without error his message to humanity. Okay, that's what we believe. Uh, there's plenty, plenty of passages that speak to this. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture, every bit of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So every word is profitable. And no words were ever put in Scripture merely according to what a human author thought, hey, this is a good idea, I think I'll add this. Rather, the Holy Spirit says here, moved them to write exactly what God wanted them to write. And they were guarded from human distortion. And the word that Peter uses to carry along is a word used to describe a ship being kind of moved or borne along by the wind. Just as a sailboat cannot be moved without the wind, so the authors of Scripture could not be moved without the Spirit of God moving them along to write what God wanted them to write. So they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. And yet, here's the thing. Amazingly, God included their own styles. God included those authors' own uh, personalities, included their own stories, and, and included their, uh, their own historical setting okay, that they were in. So this means, in order to rightly understand the Bible for us today, 2,000 years later, there's a couple things we need to do. Number one, we need, to lead it, we need to read it literally. You say, what does that mean? It's a book. We're not looking for special signs and unique things hidden in a word or a verse hidden in there, counting up numbers and verses or anything like that. We read it like a book because it is a book that God gave to us. So we read it grammatically and we want to understand the rules of language and all that good stuff. It's also rightly, to rightly understand the Bible, we must read it redemptively. We talked about this already. We take every verse, every paragraph, you know, every chapter, every book of the Bible, and we put it back into the great storyline, or sometimes we use the word meta-narrative, the great story, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, we put it back into the storyline. But also we must read it historically, meaning we need to understand as best we can what was going on for both the readers and the writers of that particular passage that we're studying. And that part is what makes it probably the most difficult at times. Um, that means parts of Scripture can be hard to understand at times. If I had a show of hands, hopefully everybody would raise their hand, but you don't need to do that right now. But if I asked you, like, you've ever read a passage of Scripture that made you scratch your head and go, I have no idea what he's saying, you would all probably raise your hand, right? The reason is, is because sometimes we don't have the footage, okay? We don't have the footage of what was going on exactly in, in history or in that particular church. Like, this was being written to a church in Corinth. We know Corinth is a real city. We know it's around today. We know it's very different today than it was 2,000 years ago. And so we don't know what all was going on at times. We do rely sometimes on historians, archaeologists. That's why that work is really important for us, uh, to help us understand what was going on at the time. So even in our letter, we know, for example, this letter is 1 Corinthians. We know, based on the kind of reading the book, that it's a, the Corinthians, a church, wrote a letter to Paul, asked him a bunch of questions. This letter is Paul's answer to those questions. But guess what we don't have? 
we don't have the questions. <laughs> so we're left to try to figure out, like, based on his answer, I, I think they were asking this, okay? So we, have, we don't understand some of those things at times. Um, we're left to try to figure out what those questions were and what was going on in that society. So our fogginess may be because the linguistic, historical, contextual evidence that we need to understand a passage correctly is presently maybe not completely known to us. There may be some cultural realities during that time that we just don't understand yet. And this is not unique. By the way, if you think like sometimes we read passages like this and go, I'm not sure what was going on. Peter had the same thought about what Paul wrote. Listen to this, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Our beloved, Paul, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, right? So if the apostle Peter is like going, I don't totally understand what Paul is saying, it would make you feel a little encouraging and go like, okay, I'm with him on that one. So in the end, it's perfectly reasonable, and we want to say this honestly, perfectly reasonable to say that we don't always have an answer to every question we may have, though we may as we learn more, again, history and things like that. But I do believe, and here's the kind of why I've said all this this morning, even if the cultural practices are unclear to us today, like kind of the head covering thing going on here, the principles of a passage can still be understood, okay? The gospel is not connected to just one particular culture. It's applied in each individual culture a little differently, but the principles are above all cultures. So when the Bible talks about, let me give you a couple examples, because maybe you read this in the Bible before. One of the pas- another passage in the Bible would say things like, give each other a holy kiss. How many, did you, how many guys do this this morning? Okay, all right, unless it was your spouse, hopefully not. Uh, the principle, right, was to do what? It was to greet one another, right? It was to be kind to one another. The cultural practice that time, 2,000 years ago, was to give a kiss. Sometimes in, in other cultures outside of America, this happens. I'm going to Brazil here in a couple of weeks. They, they do that as well there. It's going to be very weird for me because I'm not the most affectionate person anyway, so you could, you could pray for me on that one. Um, but our cultures, right, in order to apply that passage, our culture's like, you may give a hug, you may give a handshake, you may give a fist bump, right? It all depends on kind of who, who you're kind of interacting with and how can you greet them and how can you express kindness and love towards them. If, uh, if we start trying to enforce a cultural practice um, of greeting one another with a holy kiss kind of idea, we're going to have some people very uncomfortable, first of all, may have some people really excited, which is probably not good, and then we're going to have other people ready to fight, right? They're like, that's my spouse. What are you doing, right? So, I mean, it, we don't want to apply it directly like that, but the principle's still there. Let me give you another one. Washing feet. Okay, that's another one. Washing feet. How many of you guys washed somebody's feet this morning? If you had a baby, you may have done that. But otherwise, you didn't. To wash feet 2,000 years ago was the idea of showing hospitality, again, and kindness to a visitor or someone who came over to your place. Um, the specific way of doing that was washing feet. Why? Because all roads that they walked on were dirt, and people walked everywhere and wore sandals. Uh, they shared the same roads, by the way, with animals and walked through all kinds of not-so-sweet-smelling things. Um, so when they came over to your house, to love them would be washing their feet. In some ways, you kind of loved yourself in doing that too, right? Because they didn't eat like we eat. They actually like reclined like on couches, so their feet were all up in your face as you're eating. So it was very kind for you to do it for them and very kind for you to do it for them too right to wash their feet so in our passage we get to head coverings we honestly don't know just be honest i normally get up here and say here's what it means and i'm very try to be very clear but there's things like this that i don't know we don't know what was going on in corinth to have paul tell men not to wear head coverings and women to wear head coverings matter of fact 
we're not even sure what the head cover even was, right? They're not even sure what that even meant. Um, we, aren't, we aren't sure what the covering was. I mean, I read a ton of different, I mean, I read like probably a dozen at least different people, and I, I honestly, I think 12 all 12 different people had different ideas of what it meant, right? So I'm not gonna get up here and try to choose one. I'm just gonna tell you I don't know exactly what was going on in that time. So, uh, so we, we just don't know, but that doesn't mean that we need to take some scissors and cut out this passage. It doesn't mean we need to skip over it and go to the next passage and just say, well, we don't know, let's just move on. Uh, there are tremendous, good, life-giving principles found in this passage that we can apply, and they all have to do with gender, <laughs> which, of course, isn't controversial at all today, right? I, lo- I love, by the way, in verse 16, Paul says, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, like, Really? That's like an understatement. Yeah, I think they're sort of contentious on this one. Um, so, so here are the questions that we find answers to today. Let me give you a couple of the questions that we'll kind of answer this morning. Where, where did gender come from? Is the whole idea of male and female just kind of a cultural thing that we've kind of made up over time? Or is there, is there something, a deeper reality to that? Is gender good? Are the distinctions in gender good? What about gender differences like in the church, in roles, in the home, in the church? Are there differences in those? What about equality? Does God value men over women? Does God value women over men? Or why or why not? Like, why does he do that? Um, There there are some pretty pretty practical questions, right? Those are things being asked today all over our culture and questions that you probably ask yourself. Um, And unfortunately, there's a a lot of yelling going on on this subject. Uh, in the culture, people yelling at each other, and sadly, even within churches, a lot of yelling going on. And so we need to approach the subject with humility and grace in how we handle each other, how our take on the issue. And listen, if, if you're visiting this morning, again, uh, just want to say we, God sovereignly brought you here for this very purpose, okay, for this message. Uh, I know it seems strange maybe at times, but this is what's next, and this is what God has brought us to. But I want you to understand, too, that we're going to deal with the passage and that ultimately Jesus is what it's all about, okay? He's what it's all about. These roles and understanding them are not central to the gospel, but they're important, and Jesus wants us to discuss them, so we're going to. So here are the three truths we're going to look at. Uh, Three truths about gender differences. We're going to look at the creation of gender differences, the beauty, number two, of gender differences, and number three, the unity of gender differences. I will not, I promise you, answer all your questions from this pulpit this morning. Matter of fact, I will probably just create more of them than you already have. Uh, There will be a number. It's on the screen right now. Feel free to text your questions in. Uh, We have a podcast we do every week where we'll seek to answer them very specifically. Um, But I'm going to kind of give the principles and the application of some of this stuff we're going to need to discuss in other formats. All right, so let's get started. Number one, the creation of gender differences. Uh, Notice in the passage, there's a a lot of repeated language. I always tell you when you study the Bible, look for repeated words, okay? So here, uh, verse 8, we looked at verse 8. For man was not made, there's a word made, from woman. It says here in verse 9, I was man created for woman. I looked down at verse 11. uh, A woman is not independent of man or man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so a man is now born of woman. So here we have this, a lot of idea of created and being made and all that kind of language. And the point is, is that gender differences, guys, is God's idea. It's, it's God's, it's not our idea. It's God's idea, and it's good. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible, and the first couple of chapters you can read and hear where he's coming from. He goes back there to tell us that our differences as male and female are not cultural. They are part of God's initial creation. 
You can go back and read those first chapters, and you hear God repeat something. Every day he creates something. At the end of that day, he says that everything is what? Good, right? He says everything's good. Everything is good. He keeps repeating that. You don't read anywhere in Genesis where God created something and goes, oops, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> we got we to schedule to keep. We got to move on. So it's just, it is what it is, right? No, he doesn't say that. Everything is good, okay? We have uh, um, everything. This includes our gender differences. We're not... We're not um, This is all part of the design. It's good. You go to Genesis 2 then, after chapter 1, we see that Adam, the man, was said to be incomplete alone. No sin in the world, but yet incomplete. And God created Eve, it says there in the passage, and sorry I don't have time to really pull those up right now, but it's Genesis 2, says that Eve was created as a a help. Um, they're, They're to be different. Help does not mean that the woman is a weaker person, but a different, and this is a very important word, complementary partner uh, in the relationship. To help, someone, to help someone is to pick up where they are weak and help, right? It's to know something more or do something better than the person that you are helping. If you have kids and you try to help them with their homework, for example, um, only if you were actually in some way smarter than them uh, could you find a way to help them, which is why I can't help my kids with chemistry, for example. But if you weren't also a servant, then you couldn't help them either. So to help was to compliment, come alongside of, help in that way, and also to serve. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus would call the Holy Spirit a helper, right? The one who comes alongside of and helps us in our weaknesses. That's the role that, in Genesis 2, that God created uh, the woman to have. Then in our passage here, verse 3, we see a lot of language about headship, a lot of language about that. The husband, or the man, is to be the head, it says, of the wife. And here's the other complicated part of the passage. The word can be translated wife or woman. We're not sure which one. But it implies, <clears throat> sorry, I just hit puberty there. Um, it implies, uh, I am a man. Um, it implies leadership and responsibility on the men's part, okay? It implies leadership and responsibility on the men's part. This is why, even though in the, in, the, in the story of the Bible, we find Eve, she did sin first. If you remember the story or not, maybe she took some fruit, ate it, gave it to her husband to eat, and sin came into the world. Even though she was first, you go to Romans 5, and you find that who's culpable for that? Who's responsible for it? Adam was, right? The responsibility was laid upon him. Um, so we find that. And Paul argues here in this passage in verse 3, uh, from the, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who God is. Because roles of authority and submission are to be based on love, not tyranny. The Father sent the Son out of love. Jesus submitted to the Father out of love as a sign of humility and strength, by the way, not weakness. And Jesus leads the church in love. So whatever Paul means, uh, implication-wise, or specifically, I guess, by the head of a, of a wife as her husband can't be understood to degrade, downplay, or threaten her stance as equal, because Jesus, it says here, is also ahead, and he doesn't degrade, downplay, or threaten the church, nor does the Father treat him that way, right? So there's clearly, that's not what is meant by that. What it does mean, though, is that gender differences and roles are not the result of the fall. What we mean by that? It's not the result of sin. They didn't come into play after sin entered the world. They're based on the Trinity. They're founded in creation. Sin, though, did make our differences very dysfunctional, to say the least. Sometimes catastrophic, but it didn't didn't cause differences or roles. Uh, One writer, uh, John Piper, put it this way. He said, when sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not because it brought headship and submission into existence, but because it twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination in some men and lazy indifference in others. 
and it twisted a woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative flattery in some women and brazen insubordination in others. Sin didn't create headship and submission. It ruined them, and it distorted them. It made them ugly and destructive. So there, there are deep, uh, profound differences between men and women. Everything God created, again, was good, including our differences and our roles. You say, so what? Well, there's a couple implications of this. One is that we should be grateful, right? We should be grateful for our differences instead of being critical of them. You may not like certain things about how or um, about you or about how God maybe created you specifically, but he is good. And you need to believe that he, he has good purposes for how he created you as male and female. Some people really struggle with how God made them biologically in that way. And we find here that we, whatever all those struggles are, we do find rooted in the, in the Bible that God didn't, it was good ultimately that God made you male or made you female. Those are a good thing. Also, specifically in marriage, husbands and wives need to look at each other and be able to say to one another, you know, I am glad that you're good at this and I'm glad I can compliment you in this way, right? Both should be able to say that. Why do we not as husbands and wives talk about our differences in positive ways instead of feeling defeated or crushed or less than? Differences are a gift, not a curse. Gender distinctions are not a curse to be covered, but a blessing to be celebrated, okay? That's number one. So that's the creation of it. Number two, the beauty of gender differences. There are not a lot of places in life where God gives the opportunity to practically fulfill the roles that he has given to us in very specific ways and live out the gospel in that way. Those two places we find in the New Testament, or at home, and in the church. Let's look at both of those. Again, not controversial at all. Um, in the home, God has determined not that women can't lead or incapable, but that the men's approach to leadership in the home is what he wants in the home. This is what it means for men to be the head like Jesus is the head, right? They are to be like Jesus. They are to lead and care for their wives and for their families. Also, God has determined uh, that the gift mix, the approach of women receiving that is good for the home as well. And that's the language of help we looked at earlier and symbolized in our text, I think, with the, with the head covering idea. Men take the lead. Women are to serve. And there is a deep masculinity and femininity that's tapped into in the home when we live into these type of roles. So both men and women are submit to God and to each other, as Ephesians 5 says. They're both called to do things that they may not be bent to want to do, okay? Wives are to do something that they may not want to do at times, is look at their husband for leadership and to serve. Husbands, you're to do, you're do things at times you don't want to do. You're to take the lead and not be passive. You remember back in Genesis 3, if you remember the story, when Eve took the fruit and ate it, um, Adam was there. You know what he did? Zilch. He didn't do anything, Right? I mean, the silence of Adam was, was, is deafening in that passage. Listen to it, Genesis 3, 6. Woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of it and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. Like, he was there the whole time. It was like he showed up, like, hey, what's going on? He watched the whole thing happen. So while the serpent is engaging Eve, tempting her to disbelieve God, Adam apparently just stood there. Mutely witnessing the whole scene. I don't know, he's like a bag of popcorn and some Mike and Ikes, and he's just, and just watching, you know, hey, this is really entertaining. Like, didn't say anything. Doesn't say a word. Takes no action, other than, by the way, to join into the rebellion. Um, doesn't say a word. And since that time, every man struggles to lead well. They won't step into the fray. 
They, they won't engage. They won't own what God wants them to own, right? And that makes the greatest fight of your life, men, understand this, the greatest fight of your life is not your fight against greed or lust or, or pride or any of those things. Your greatest fight is to fight the passivity that's in your heart, the, the fact that you don't want to step in, that you don't want to engage and be the leader that God has called you to be. So both, the, both roles of husband and wife are scary at times and not easy, and there's a lot of kind of abuse that can be done in those areas. But when we function as God has called us to, when we stay kind of in their lane as God has called us, and we love as Jesus loves, and we complement each other, there's deep and profound beauty in that. There's a partnership, a living out of the gospel that is so very, very unique. The other area uh, is the church, and the church God has determined not that women can't lead, but that men's approach to leadership in the church is what he wants. This is why the role of pastor, as we believe, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, teach is male-only. Um, so when it comes to maybe the preaching aspect, the judging of doctrine, the leading in church discipline is a pastor-only, men-only type role. This is, again, God pushing men to do what they don't usually want to do, and that is to take the lead. As for the women, they are free to do anything in the church. It's not pastor-only role, okay? If it's, if it's not pastor-only, then it's open. Matter of fact, in this passage, we find in the gathered church, the women are praying, the women are prophesying, right? They're, they're very much in a part of the church, Praying's talking to God about people, you could say. Prophesying is talking to people about God. So they're both doing it, male and female, both doing it. One's vertical, one's horizontal, right? So we find both men and women involved in both aspects of that ministry. Now, in Greek culture, it's important you understand this, because sometimes you can read this, and we can talk about these principles, and you kind of get a, um, a twisted view because you're kind of a child of your culture that you're in. Understand when the Bible was written 2,000 years ago what was going on. In Greek culture, women were not educated, Okay, they were not educated. They did not speak in public. They were not allowed to speak. And yet Jesus, we follow the Gospels, right? You find Jesus serving uh, alongside women. Read Luke 8. They're there. They're part of the disciples group, okay, they're with them. They're, they're being taught, right, just like other, the other men were. And while, uh, while Christianity advanced the cause of women, the other religions oppressed women, denying them education, treat them honestly. The Roman world were more like sex objects than anything or a possession of a husband or of a father, uh, the church saw women and men as complementary to one another, not inferior. They saw and upheld God-given functions and yet believed in absolute equality. Matter of fact, the Bible even commands men to take care of and honor not only their wives, but all women as mothers and as sisters. So while the Greeks, for example, would throw out female babies to die of exposure, if you knew this or not, this is what they would do because they wanted men to join into their armies. And so if they had a baby it was female, they would just, many times the father could just throw them out into the field and have them die of exposure. Um, the church held all life to be honorable. While the Greeks would force a widow to get remarried and turn over her estate, the church allowed them to retain their estate and not to have to remarry. While the Greeks would allow men to have as many mistresses and extramarital affairs they wanted, women would be possibly killed if they did so. The church instead held the marriage bed and be in honor. Both husbands and wives were to be faithful to one another. Christianity upheld the beauty of gender differences while the world honestly distorted and abused them. Lastly, number three, the unity of gender differences. If you look down at verse 11, it says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things, he says, are from God. So the point is he's making there is we're not meant to exist apart from each other. Right? Women can't exist apart from men. Men can't exist apart from women. We need each other. We complement one another uh, in, in, in that way. 
Um, and even though there are, gen- there are distinct differences in men and women, there is unity and there's equality and there's interdependence. This understanding of interdependence and equality would have been scandalous and unheard of for the first readers in their culture. It means that together we approach Jesus without regard to age or ethnicity or class or gender. Okay? We approach God in a unified way. We don't, this is, uh, listen to Galatians 3.28. There is, Paul says in this letter, same writer, by the way, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ. So in the gospel, we become one unified community of believers. In the gospel, God obliterates that which separates us um, when we become part of the family. We like categories, right? Mainly because we like a sense of superiority. If I put people in a category, I can say I'm a little bit better than they are in this specific way. In Greek culture, like ours, right, from 2,000 years ago, people were broken down as inferior or superior based on their ethnicity, based on their economic capacity, and based on their gender. The typical, I told you this before, but the typical Jewish male prayer, he'd get up in the morning, this is what he would pray, God, I thank you that you've not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. How about that prayer every morning you get up, all right? Um, Paul is saying that because we're all, uh, all, uh, all our children of God, we all wear the clothes, as it were, of Jesus, that makes no one no greater or lesser value put on any child, as if God has some favorites or something. The language here of this verse says that we're all one person in Christ. No one's more favored in that way. God doesn't do report cards and rankings. Because why? Because, guys, we're not a son or daughter of God based on our performance. We're a son or daughter of God based on the acceptance of Christ. Right, so that makes, that makes no one better than the other. God has established in Christ nothing less than a new humanity. Our relationship to the church, our relationship towards one another, is based entirely upon our relationship towards Jesus. We are united in him. We are united to one another. We need the same salvation, the same cross, the same empty tomb, the same bodily resurrection, the same returning king. Like we need all the same things. Now, we need to understand what Paul is saying and not saying in that Galatians 3 passage. Paul is not obliterating racial, social, or gender distinctions. The church is not a raceless, classless, androgynous society. That's not what he's saying. When we come to Christ, we don't cease to be who we were. We don't cease to be Asians or Africans or bosses or employees or women or men. That's what he's saying. We didn't, those don't go away. But rather, the unity now is in that diversity, which makes a beautiful mosaic. That's what makes the church, they'll know you by your love for one another because we're supposed to love one another despite our differences. We're to love one another despite whatever those differences may be. And that's a beautiful opportunity to show the world the love of God. Like a father, it kind of keeps all of his kids in order, right? Keeps them all together, and they actually care about each other. It's amazing. So what Jesus is eliminating in the gospel is our inequality. What he has not eliminated is our differences. Jesus is not making us the same. That's not the goal is to make us the same. He's making us unified with all of our differences. This means that all the barriers that separate people in the world into warring factions they come down in Jesus. The gender barrier is gone in Christ, even though there are gender differences. Consider what this means for marriage. One writer, Stephen, um, put, put it this way. He said, all roles in Christian marriage are informed by Christ's relationship with the church. There's nothing regressive, dictatorial, or heavy-handed about Christ's relationship with the church. He gives himself up to and beyond the point of death in order to save his bride. He gives himself up to beautify his bride. Husbands are to give themselves up. They are to love their wives as their own bodies. Wives are invited to be recipients of and responders to the sacrificial giving of their husbands. When one 
one's marriage fails to reflect this beautiful artistic balance, there's abundant grace. Individuals are equal and interdependent, and they function in relationships of mutual self-giving. As I said earlier, if this is hard for you to accept, then you need to go back again to the creation. Go back to how God made. God said everything was good. Our differences are good. Our roles are good. Okay? And I think God has earned our trust on this one. Okay? Argue what you want uh, about any of these things. But one thing that cannot be said about God is that he doesn't love us. Okay? These things aren't cruel. I think he's proven that to us. God not only entered our world, think about this, God only embodied, came into our world, right? He jumped into the fray. He lived a, a perfect life showing love and serving uh, us over and over again. He went, then he went to a cross. He died a death we should have died. And he gave up his life there. He submitted to the Father. He submitted to the elements. He submitted to the mission that God had given to him, right? He submitted. He, he, he went underneath it. He served us as, as God has called us as women, the women there to do. And he also took responsibility. Think about this. He's, he's, he stood up to be counted. Jesus was not silent, was he? He wasn't silent. Rather, his throat was raw from screaming on that cross, right? He, he yelled out in that way as he bore our sin. He took the responsibility. He led as men you're called to do. And if God can be trusted, which I think he can, then gender roles, which are all God's gift to human beings, are to be rejoiced in, enjoyed, not endured, and not resented. Okay? So again, I know, difficult passage, difficult principles, good stuff for us to talk about, you know, discuss a little bit, text in your questions. We are going to transition to this point in our service as we go to reflect on Jesus, we go to communion. And we take communion time, if you're new with us, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to be, take part of this. And what we do is we have a time of silence, because we're just so loud and busy all the time. And we just need some quiet time. We need to have some silence uh, in our own soul, be still and know that I'm God, and reflect on how Jesus entered into the fray, right? He did fulfill everything that we've been called to do, both as male and female. Jesus embodied both of those. He served, he submitted, he led, he stood up to be counted, or he did all of that. And so we go to the tables, there's bread and there's juice that we do in remembrance of him, right? We remember his body given up for us and his blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him in anticipation of his soon return. As we do that, if you're part of the church membership, we have opportunity to give your offerings as well. If you're visiting, please, we're not asking for anything uh, in that way. Let me pray for us. We'll have a time of communion and then uh, we'll sing some songs and celebrate a little bit of baptism as well. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Uh, thank you for this passage, as difficult as it may be. Um, Lord, we, uh, we know that we live in a culture that this particular subject comes up. Um, there's a lot of disagreements on it. Uh, we also understand there's a lot of abuses of these principles. Um, we see people on both sides of the aisle, as it were, people who take these passages to one extreme or the other um, to where it becomes an abuse or it doesn't mean anything at all. But God, it does mean something. You created our differences uh, we should thank you for what that, what that is. And we should seek to live out those, both in the home and the church, in our lives in general, God. Help our men in this church to be good, godly leaders like Jesus was. Help us to help our men to lead in a loving, compassionate, come to serve, not to be served, and to give their life and lay it down and to serve the, serve the others around them. God, help our ladies to, to follow you, Jesus, to be like the Holy Spirit, to come alongside of and to help and encourage um, and God, use their gifts as you've given them to them. God, we love you. We thank you for uh, our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.